1: Chris and Corey continue their discussion with Valerie Schlitt, CEO and founder of VSA, which began with the Market Dominance Guys podcast episode, When Operational Excellence Meets a Nine-Foot Wall. Making another observation about operational excellence, Chris begins this session with the statement, a big part of operational excellence is recognizing that you don't always have the resources that you need to get the job done perfectly or even well. Valerie thrives on solving problems just like this one and is adept at addressing problems in unique ways. Together, these three sales experts tackle the issue of maintaining operational excellence while running a business, either before or during a pandemic. As their discussion progresses, they debunk several myths about the best way to plan a cold call campaign. They tear apart the misconception of how much time it takes to onboard a sales rep, and they share some of the unexpected employment backgrounds that have made for the most effective BDRs always intelligent, often irreverent. Chris, Corey, and Valerie delve into what works and what doesn't in the world of sales. You won't want to miss their insights.
0: I, I think a big part of operational excellence is recognizing that you don't always have the resources that you need to get the job done perfectly or even well. And sometimes you just have to guess. And if you don't have a formal process for entering guessing mode and then doing the guess and then treating the guess as a fact, I think it's really hard to do. And I think it's a distinguishing feature among operationally excellent leaders is that they, they know that they're the guesser. And when it's time to guess, they're upfront about the fact that they're guessing. So would you say, Chris, that that all most
2: operational mandates, operational posits facts today
0: have its origin story in a guess yesterday? Usually, yes, and COVID's a great example. When COVID hit, we were suddenly all out of time and didn't have very much information. How did we know we were out of time? Because we could ask our CFOs when we're gonna run out of money. <laughs> That's right. right? <laughs> that, was a, that was the uh, March 22nd question this year. <laughs> right. so you go to the CFO and you say, okay, <laughs> so in scenario you know, number bad, right, where all of our customers can't pay us, Mm -hmm. 22 million people die, when do we run out of money? And then you can reason your way to all sorts of stuff, but you don't have enough information to tell you what to do. And so you take a guess. And you got to do it fast. The brick's been thrown at your head. I mean, COVID was a pretty quick little brick. And so we guess. And I think it's where the great stuff tends to come from. Because when we're doing what we know how to do, we're doing what we already did.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So true. it's not comfy. It's not comfy at all. I mean, I, the people often ask me, what's the deal with leadership? Aren't you a leader if people follow you? And I say, well, not, not if they're just following you, you know, on a trip to the ice cream store. No, you got to be crossing the freeway with the busy traffic and in the dark <laughs> with a dog chasing you. Then you find out if you're a leader. (laughs) When they follow you then? Yeah, maybe.
2: (laughs) Well, let's talk about that that operational excellence theme about guessing, right, in terms of uh, Valerie at VSA, right? It's a top-of-funnel firm, and you talk about, Chris, that should we do everything as a leader, as a CEO, as a VP of sales, as a sales manager? And certainly, Valerie, a company like yours and chris uh, certainly a weapon like connect and sell right are two such vehicles where i've got to cross this this little chasm here i've got i i'm faced with this nine foot wall do i want to go down do i want to just stick with mountains or they already have a predictable pathway you chose to go the path not traveled right the way not mapped yet so valerie from a operational perspective when somebody lands at your doorstep as a vp of sales what do they say valerie i need help i cannot do x anymore i've reached the limit of my potential with my team and why i don't want to hire any more folks i want to try this new particular market i want to test some new messaging You know, what state do you find a lot of the folks emotionally when they arrive at your doorstep, whether to engage in VSA or not?
3: Oh, as you probably know, they arrive in all different states. But I would say the most common state is they know they have a problem. They don't want to or have any idea how to fix it. And they have hope. They are optimistic. And we've developed trust. So, from there, there i mean obviously, what we do in helping people set appointments, a lion's share of it i don't know seventy five percent of it is the same for every single client, but that other part makes a big difference on whether we're going to be successful for each individual client, and that is the messaging or the team that we put on a program or the cadence that we call with. A, the list that we choose, like all of those things. And I think of it as this big multidimensional puzzle that you have here, where there is part of it that's the same and all the rest can be switched around in different ways and always need to be switched around. It never stops. It's, you try something in the beginning and okay, we're going to go with this message with, so we have a team-based operation, which means that we have three or four people on a certain client that comprise one full-time equivalent. And the reason for that is we recruit people in a very different way than other people do, uh, other firms do, in that we are not actually looking only for sales people. We're looking for people who have great communication skills, can engage, they're inquisitive, and they also often only want some kind of a part-time job because they have other commitments. So this is whole group of talent that cannot work in the t- traditional nine to five role and we get them. So we put them all together in this team and they share their feedback. They share what they what works, what doesn't work, and they get kudos from each other. And RARAS is a whole team orientation that we talked about earlier. You know, they're not doing it alone. And that way we can also see who is producing, who's not producing, and if someone's not producing, then we can take them off and we know it's not just key person dependent. But who we put on that team is going to be dependent on who fits well with that particular client's problem. It could be it could be what the outcome of the call is. It could be the industry. It could be the type of product, whether it's a service or an actual offering product. All of these little things have to be put together and you take your best guess based on 19 years of experience and start off a program that way. Always telling our client, being transparent, that we are going to be making changes as we go forward because there's going to be things that are not perfect in the beginning and we're going to have to make adjustments. And then comes the fun part, I think, which is making adjustments and seeing what actually leads to improvement. And then you want something that in the long run is pretty smooth sailing, always knowing that there are is room for growth even after we've optimized as much as we can. Did that answer your question?
2: Yeah, so what is that common myth that you've seen over the last 19 years that can be most easily debunked or demystified, right? Chris talked about, you know, hey, listen, I can't do it all, and you have to kind of cross this mental chasm to get to another layer, another level of maturity, of business maturity. I can't do it by myself. But in relation to VSA and, and the business you've built over 19 years, what do you find is that one or two big common areas that are debunked about an outsourcing firm, about a telesales firm, about a top of funnel firm, oh. that it doesn't take you too long for them to, you know, to run your Jedi mind tricks to say, no, 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 you no. Know, and their whole world, like inception, just comes tumbling down that they thought I was a tree hugger about this for years. You come in, debunk this theory that they had, and it opens up an entirely new world.
3: Uh, there's so many, but I'll go through some. We don't need to know everything about your product or service in order to be successful and <laughs> deliver qualified appointments.
0: <laughs> my favorite. That's right. <laughs> well, you um, don't
2: understand, Valerie, my product, my product is different. You know yes,
3: exactly <laughs> you're so unique so good. no I we treat every client as though they are unique and every client is unique but we need to know enough to connect with someone and give them a reason to want to talk more and that's and we have to be really good at that and not go any further because if we go further then we're going to ruin it so and that's no one wants that we'll be back in a moment after a quick
1: break <music> and sell welcome to the end of dialing as you know it connect and sells patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to ten times more live qualified conversations every day and when we say qualified we're talking about really qualified like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their impossible whopper kind of qualified learn more at ConnectandSell.com. <laughs>
3: Another one would be that you have to have seasoned salespeople on the phone in order to be successful. And we have proven that you don't need that. You need a certain personality, a certain inquisitiveness, uh, competence. People, they can't be afraid to talk to someone on the phone but we make them really excited to talk to people on the phone after they've been with us for a while. But at least they can't start off afraid. So you don't need a seasoned salesperson. Cold calls really do work. People <laughs> think that they might not work, although by the time they come to us, they're open to it. Valerie, but- I think I think just those three alone, Chris. We should probably have
2: Valerie on regularly and change it from market dominance guys to market dominance people, market dominance perfect. <laughs> I mean. This is, you're speaking the language that Chris has taught us over the last year. This is uh, great stuff. So uh, keep going. This is a great list of these
0: debunked myths here. You know, there's this big ramp time thing. And uh, we had a funny thing the other day where Sean Cease, who is working with us for a while and is now still working with us, but he's outside the company. He posted something on LinkedIn that had actual numbers of him ramping to set his first meeting for a brand new client and his own outsourcing business. And the, he had, a, you know, broken down a detail minute by minute kind of thing. And his conclusion was, yeah, you can ramp a new, you know, a rep and a new message to be effective with a business they've never seen before setting appointments in two hours. And I think it was the most controversial thing that I've seen anybody say in a while. And a lot of experts came in and said, but what about, but what about, but what about, but what about? And it's like, folks, I published the actual numbers. Here's the recordings. It's right here in front. Yes. Yes, but you're really good. Well, yeah, we weren't talking about starting from, you know, when a person is conceived and then they're finally born. And uh, we are starting with a human being who can talk on the phone. I just finished an interview right
2: before we jumped on here with a potential candidate to come on board here at Youngblood and Chris and Valerie, you'll get a kick of this, because Chris, one of the questions that John and I, my, my buddy here, we were asking him is, tell me about your last position. He was a BDR, an SDR at a FinTech firm out of California. So I was like, oh, that's fascinating. And I said, so you didn't do full stack? He's like, no, no, no. I was just a, a BDR. And I say just, but he was a BDR there for, he did quite well. I said, well, tell me about your onboarding process. Well, we had two months of sales training before we hit the phone. And I said, I'm sorry, it was my trick here. Did you say two months of sales training? He's like, yeah, I said, what, you mean product training? He's like, well, there's a little bit of product, but a lot of it was sales. And I said, were you hired as a sales rep? And then a BDR is like, no, no, no. This is for all the BDRs go through this. It's like, well, that's unbelievable. We went over medic in Bant for two months. And I was like, wow, I think that Chris, uh, or I should uh, get Sean, I get the name of that firm and have sent Sean Cease over there right away. Because how about you like to take, uh, instead of 60 days down to two hours, we'll give you the benefit of four hours and your folks can be on the phone to one of the myths to buttress what you're saying, Valerie, about you don't need to know the product to be effective out of the gate here. Just be intriguing. You elicit some curiosity, establish some trust and some curiosity, and you'll be uh, pretty well on the way.
3: That Yes, absolutely. That's amazing, that uh, two, months. two months. That's a lot of investment that you could have used someplace else. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity cost hiding in there too when you really think about it. Everybody looks at this like, well, I spent two months. And that's pretty normal. I think two months is pretty normal onboarding for new BDRs out there in, in the tech world. And then the washout rate is about 60% over a four-month, five-month period. So now you are you have to take your two months and divide it by 40%, right? So you're going to multiply it by two and a half. So now you're a 5 months equivalent on the mean and in five months i would expect a new bdr to set 2.3 meetings per day Ooh. so at Ooh. 2.3 meetings a day times five months that's you know 46 47 meetings a month so that's 150 meetings roughly speaking for three months and now we're out to another 70 or so 75 so we're in the 200 250 meetings that didn't happen that didn't <laughs> yes. happen exactly. And exactly the
2: chris, chris month, they did happen they happen for your competitor who's using Connect
0: and Sell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but also no. the case. It's interesting how people do this math. And when you challenge them on it and say, well, why are you doing that? They generally will say, well, I read in this book that onboarding works like this and blah, blah, blah. And what they're really saying is this, the longer this process is, And the more elaborate it is, the more important I am. Because the biggest impediment to operational excellence, in my experience, is in politics. It's in the politics of importance. And it's very hard to be operationally excellent when the focus is on people being seen as being important. Because importance, that sense of needing to be important, or seen as being important, has its own inflation built in. It's got its own version of you know, whoever's law you want to take, or you know, it could be Parkinson's law or some other law that says stuff expands to fill whatever it is out there to expand into. And the, the need to be seen as an important player expands and expands and expands. And I, I also think it's the reason that we tend not to see very many organizations operate based on the theory of constraints. Now, the theory of constraints tells us that we have one bottleneck in our current process, and it would be a really good idea to go find it, inspect it, characterize it, come up with an investment hypothesis, test that hypothesis, and if it makes sense, if it works out, then make the investment, and then stand back and watch the system settle down and see where the constraint goes. Well, the problem is everybody feels like they're unimportant, because the constraint isn't in their department. Mm-hmm. And so they fight it. And at budget meetings, you very rarely hear anybody say, you know what, the stuff we're doing is going really well. I actually don't need any money next year beyond just the resources <laughs> to make it happen, right? But if you can get the politics out to the point where you can go after the constraints, and in this case, the constraint is a false constraint around time. If you invested in this correctly, you'd end up with the two-hour ramp or the one day or whatever it happens to be. It's really challenging to get folks to say, I'm part of the team. It's important that I do my job, but it's not important that I'm important or seen as important right now. It's okay that I'm just part of the team right now because my stuff's working. You guys ever see that? Or am I crazy?
2: (laughs) You know, I think it's part and partial of the profession, though, I don't know what you think about this, Valerie, right? And you have a lot of part-timers, right? Or you say you have people who are, I'm secure enough in being a stay-at-home dad where I have a window, or I'm secure enough to be a, a student who's going to law school where I have a window. It's my identity versus my role, like Sandler talks about. And I think, though, that a lot of us who are full-time in sales especially coming from the bigger organizations where you you have the great equalizer is what's on the board or if i'm a sales manager the great equalizer is how big is my team right mm-hmm. it's the sense of importance the sense of alternative currency is um different than uh, and it has to do with people and time versus probably results in investment and growth And I think which ties back to our theme on operational excellence, right, is this element of developing a mindset where you don't have to put eight hours a day and talk with three people and spend 47 dials and send out, you know, um, a thousand emails. It's okay to feel you're worth about how many people you talked to. Did you grow today? Did you learn something today? The word I think, Chris, I've been stealing from you from a few months ago is ruthlessly curious. I think that's the word that uh, (laughs) you use that you try to uh, perpetuate in your organization, correct?
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of ruthless curiosity. And by ruthless, I mean, you know, almost like a three-year-old asking why and not taking because I said so as an answer. And I think that that's a hard thing to have in an organization because it roots out politics all by itself, Mm -hmm. but it can also be used as a political weapon. And therefore it has to be managed. You You can go around and ask why for the purpose of wielding power over people, or you can ask why because you're genuinely curious. There's another element to this because some people are like that by personality. They're genuinely curious. Valerie, I'm really curious about this when you're going out to hire folks, do you find the CIA and the NSA in particular, they love to hire people who come out of either theology backgrounds or uh, philosophy backgrounds of some kind, or music, musical, people who are musical performers in order to be computer programmers on this really hard stuff that they work on. Because those two kinds of backgrounds happen to be consonant with the skills that it takes to do that puzzle kind of work that you do in those organizations with software. And often it's surprising where the skills tend to aggregate in college, what people are interested in. And I've seen an example of the best cold caller I've seen in years and years and years was a therapist. I got to see her on her first day as a cold caller. Never done it before, never thought about doing it before. And these very smart people in Philadelphia thought that maybe it'd be a good idea for her to give it a go on very specific connected cell test drive. And she approached us as a therapist. She listened like a therapist, she intervened like a therapist, and she set meetings at a pace that generated more than $120,000 an hour for their business. Wow. Of Nat, So I got a glimpse into that, and I thought, whoa, are we missing it? <laughs> maybe we should – I mean, the psychology departments are full of these people who get trained in this stuff, and but mainly they were attracted to it. They were attracted to it, and therefore maybe it's a magnet for a certain type of person that we could go and say, hey, you know, you've got a couple hours
3: a day? Fascinating. We yeah. – uh, in the beginning, we – somehow got through this network of people who worked in a preschool and a lot of the teachers came and worked with us. And very quickly, I realized that if you are a preschool teacher, you have a way of talking that gets people to listen to you right away and do what you want them to do. And you can talk to a lot of people, a lot of different temperaments. I forget what all the commonalities were, but... There was a lot of commonality between being a preschool teacher and being someone who can talk on the phone and capture attention and secure appointments. That's and it. that was really an eye opener.
0: Do you still do that? Do you rec- I mean, there must be preschool teachers that are, you know. Like uh, venture capital in Silicon Valley, the streets must be awash in preschool <laughs> teachers, right?
3: They probably are. We don't do it purposefully anymore. We kind of happened into this little network, but I'm sure that the same qualities of some of the people that we bring on are are similar to that. What was the common nectar that you? There was one person that recited? came to the the organization she wanted to and not everyone works part-time she wanted to work full-time so she worked full-time but she had these buddies that she said oh come on come on this is a great place to work you got to come you have to convince someone though who's talking to kids that this is really very similar and it's a nice place to work because it seems kind of scary you have to make all these telephone calls and talk to strangers but then little by little they came over and I think we have had probably about five
0: now how about the flip on the other side, so I have an example last year where a friend who's running a company doing some sort of, it uh, wasn't outsourced cold calling, but it was for himself. And I looked at his business. I said, you know, I think that you ought to give my first wife a try with regard to calling. And it just seemed to me, I mean, I knew her well. We were married for you know quite a while. And I have a huge amount of respect for her capabilities. And... Uh, it was just the most horrible experience in the world for her. It created this anxiety. And, you know, here I'm saying, oh, connect yourself, lots of fun. You push the button, you talk to somebody. And she said it was like something really horrible, like anticipating putting your finger in an electrical socket kind of horrible. Uh, when, not when she pushed the button, but waiting for the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so here's a case of somebody who seems like a good match. She's, you know, smart, articulate. Hardworking, courageous, used to run her own business at a bookstore and built it from nothing, and it's like the worst job in the world for her. You no, know? and do you find that sometimes you think you're increasing the operational excellence with a particular hire, and their eyes are bigger than their stomach when it comes to stomaching cold
3: calls? I can't re- think of anyone in particular, but I do want to translate to as we've migrated over to Connect and Sell and putting people on Connect and Sell. People were really afraid at first that these calls were gonna come. They weren't gonna be able to study all the notes. I mean, you can see the notes of course, but you don't get to see, I don't know, six months worth of notes. And they were gonna come shooting at them. How are they gonna address it? my gosh, everyone loves it, but change is hard. And that part of our journey towards operational excellence it really didn't take that much adjustment, but it did take people being convinced that they would be fine when, if they get put on Connect and Cell. And now everyone loves it.
0: Oh, it's the scariest product in the world. It still scares me. It, it does. It, because what you're doing is you're putting yourself in a known vulnerable situation mm-hmm. without control over the precise control over timing. You don't know if the beep's going to be one second from now or 10 minutes from now. Uh, it has a little bit of a horror movie quality to it of being in a you know, dark room with something bad in there. And you don't know if that bad thing's gonna get you or not. And then when the lights turn on, it's a surprise party and they're pouring (laughs) you champagne.
1: (laughs) Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an Uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get Uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe.